If you have Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 21. We're going to be looking at more than verses 1 through 6 this morning. Um, but we're going to be looking at that especially. As we begin, let me once again open in prayer. You who sit upon the throne, the one who has created everything that is from nothing, the one who has demonstrated power in so many ways, and yet has also demonstrated your love in ways we cannot escape, I pray that you would open our eyes, our minds, our hearts, our ears, and that we would be transformed as we picture the reality to come. God, please work in your people, work in us, and help us to see what it is you call us both to expect, but also to endure. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we go into the passage for today, I want to begin with 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Uh, because as I look at the passage that EC has asked me to preach, there has to be a context. And so in 1 Peter 1, verse 4, it says that, well, let me begin with verse 3, where what he's saying is incredible. Beginning in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then in verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And then verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's us now. By the resurrection that Jesus demonstrated that we celebrate every Sunday as we gather, we have been given as his people new birth to a living hope. And that hope is the inheritance. And in this period of time, the promise that we're guarded as we wait for that inheritance to be given. We're to think both about what we experience now, but what it is God has prepared for us. And today, as we look at the new heavens and the new earth, we focus upon what that inheritance is. What our present, as we struggle through the reality of now, and our future holds. So E.C. has talked in the first sermon that he made on, on Revelation about the circles. You remember he had the big board that he had and he drew the circles. And so he had that picture of what the relationship between heaven and earth was like in the garden. Where there was clearly some sense of separation because God was sometimes with Adam and Eve and sometimes separate. Then in one of those times when God was away... Adam and Eve were encountered by the serpent. They were tempted. They failed, and the circles separated. Not completely. In that period post-fall, there is that small section of overlap where God meets man in worship. So we have that sense of the temple 
And again, part of what we're dealing with is not only the separation between heaven and earth, but for us, the separation between body and spirit. Because we'll look at that in a little bit as we encounter our present reality post-Christ, the period of the church. But as those circles separated, we had much of our life, much of our experience lived outside the presence and outside the acknowledgement of God, independently, in isolation. We see Adam and Eve post-fall, and there's an encounter between Cain and Abel as they made sacrifices. Abel's sacrifice was accepted, and... God delighted. Cain's sacrifice was rejected, and Cain rebelled, and he slew Abel. We see many times when God met face to face with Abraham. We see that he met with Noah. We see that there were isolated incidences where the two overlapped. And sometimes I think it's important for us to understand that as we see Moses, we recognize that God began to intensify and increase the frequency of his face-to-face meetings with man. But we misunderstand Sinai and the giving of the law. And we fail to recognize, or sometimes fail to recognize, I certainly do, the incredible gift and the intensification of that overlap of the two circles as God promises a physical presence in the tabernacle. We see that picture, whereas the tabernacle is erected and as the instruments of worship are fashioned, that God comes and inhabits the tabernacle. The presence of God descends in a pillar of fire, consumes the sacrifice that Aaron and the priests have prepared, and then rests upon the Holy of Holies as the Israelites wander in the wilderness, and the very physical presence of God is present in the the cloud by day and the fire by night. And as we read that the Israelites followed the guidance of God that when the pillar rose, day or night, the people packed up and followed until such time as they entered the Promised Land. The presence of God dwelt upon the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, and Moses met with God in the Holy of Holies face to face. That's the overlap. That's the importance of the tabernacle. Then the temple becomes a physical place where once again God, in dedicating the temple, descends upon and consumes the sacrifice prepared and indwells the Holy of Holies. And God meets with man. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, as the high priest went into the Holy of Holies to offer sacrifice. But again, that place of overlap expands and intensifies as Jesus comes. But it's one person. It's Jesus, God, Emmanuel, with us, And he says at the end of his ministry, destroy this temple, and in three days, again, I will lift it up. He was the temple because he was the place where God met man face to face. And then Pentecost. 
and the Holy Spirit is given. And in 1 Corinthians 3.16, we read that, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and God's Spirit dwells in you? That overlap becomes extended, but it's still broken. Because we're not merely spiritual beings, and we don't exist merely in a spiritual realm. We are embodied spirits. In the creation story, the Hebrew term is nefesh hawah, living embodied spirits. And so right now, we dwell in the intimate presence of God as believers who possess and are possessed by that mutual possession. I will be your God and you will be my people. But we long for the day when our eyes will see the Lord, where that sense of intimacy with God is expanded, not merely spiritually, but as embodied spirits, we dwell with God both spiritually and physically in his presence, which is that day when the new earth and the new heavens and the descent of the new Jerusalem takes place. And so let me turn to Revelation 21 as John speaks of the vision God gives him of that day. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The word of the Lord. So if John's looking and seeing the new heavens and the new earth, where is he? We recognize from the previous chapter that he's at the throne of God. We see that um, in verse 11 of chapter 20, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. He was at the throne of God, and he saw as the old heaven and the old earth ended. That doesn't mean they were destroyed. That doesn't mean they're gone and something completely different and new is in place. 
It is the new earth in the sense of transforming into being what God created earth to be. It is the new heaven in that it is transformed into being the heaven God created it to be. But it's really important that we recognize something here. It's not simply the discussion of the heaven and earth passing away, but he says something remarkable, and the sea was no more. This is that judgment. He's talked several times in the past as he has preached on this idea of the cosmos that the sea represented chaos. The sea is the place from which the beast comes. The sea is that physical representation and pardon me all those who are fishermen and sailors and who love the ocean, the sea is the representation in the Hebraic mind of hell. God formed order out of chaos. The sea is that place of chaos. And what's important here is to understand that he says the sea was no more. If you go down and you look, death shall be no more. God is talking about perfection. He's talking about the new heaven and the new earth is that place where evil and sin and suffering and loss cannot exist, do not exist. It is that place of perfection. Suffering ends, and that's our home. So John goes on to say that he saw the new heaven and the new earth the new Jerusalem. But then God talks about, as God speaks himself, the voice is that of God himself. I heard a loud voice from the throne, the voice of God, saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. At this point, the circles are overlapped. So what is this dwelling place of God with man? It is a spiritual and physical experience. We dwell in the new earth, the fulfilled earth. We dwell in a place which is physical. It is not merely spiritual. We dwell as those who are embodied spirits and live real lives, real eternal lives, in a real space doing all the things that we were created for. This is the fulfillment of Eden. And so what we do now, as E.C. is so constantly telling us, matters. Because this earth doesn't go away, it's transformed. What we do here is something that will influence and affect there. But there is no sin there is no suffering. We dwell in a place where there is mutual possession. I will be their God and they will be my people. There's a beautiful picture in Ephesians of the idea of both the pledge and the deposit. <clears throat> Those are technical terms of commerce in New Testament time periods. That pledge was, a down, was the seal. So once... The, the, the seal is made on something or someone. They belong to the new owner. So if I were rich and I were sending somebody to Lebanon to get cedar for, for me that I would use to build my home, they would take my seal. 
they would also take the down payment. And they would make that economic agreement with whoever had the cedar that I was then to purchase and own, and they would put my seal upon every piece of property. At that moment, ownership transfers. It's mine. They would also give that down payment, that beginning of payment that is a pledge of final payment. And one of the things that was remarkable about that was that it had to be in the same form. Deposit had to be the same form as final payment. So if I gave a pledge in wheat, my final payment would be in wheat. If I gave a pledge in silver, my final payment would be in silver. If I gave a pledge in gold, my final payment would be in gold. And in Ephesians, what it says is the Spirit is both the seal, as God gives us that new spirit, and we are the ones who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we are marked as His possession. We belong to Him irrevocably. But it also says that that down payment is the Holy Spirit which is remarkable because what it says is, not only do I belong to God, but now I possess God because in that economic transaction, I am bought and I am given. I will be your God and you will be my people. And that's what we experience here in the new earth as God is dwelling with man. One of the things that is remarkable is that we will live at that point face-to-face with God. And in the expression of what that means, John tells us several important things. 22, chapter 21, verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city. Remember that in all of this period of time post-fall, the temple, that place of worship, has been the overlap where God meets with man. There's no temple in the new earth. Because its temple is the Lord God Almighty in the Lamb. It is that face-to-face, immediate experience with the one who sits upon the throne. I want to read a picture of the one who sits upon the throne. Then I saw the heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. This is chapter 19. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes the sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. God is not to be trifled with. It's easy for us to go one side or the other of the equation of transcendence, that picture of the one on the white horse who brings judgment and imminence. Jesus, who wipes away every tear. 
But God is both at the same time. I want you to think for a moment of Job. You recall that in the story of Job, there is a, a discussion in heaven between God and Satan. But then at the end of the trial of Job, there's a period of time at which Job says, I wish there were one who would listen to my account. Job has been faithful. Job has been righteous. Job has been obedient. That's the whole point. Job is one of incredible faith. But Job comes to the point where he believes he can help God out. He wants one who will listen to his account because obviously things have got messed up. He is a righteous man who has endured incredible trials. And he's looking for a conversation. He's looking for that imminent God who will wipe away every tear, who will bring comfort to him and say, Job, you've gone through a hard time. But the answer that Job gets is different. The God who sits upon the throne descends and says, Who are you that darkens my counsel with foolish words? Now, if it were you and me, we would probably get a little bit offended at least I would. I can't speak for you, but I would get offended because I know that I've been doing the right thing and I know that I've been honoring God and I know that I am experiencing something I have not by my sin brought upon myself. But Job's response is different than mine. When Job finally does speak, after God confronts him, he puts his hand on his mouth and says, I spoke once in foolishness. I'm not speaking again. I don't have an answer for how you created. I don't have an answer for how you made the mountains under the ocean. I don't have an answer for how you created Leviathan. Honestly, you are God. You are the one who sits upon the throne. You are the one with the sword who destroys evil. But remarkably, that one who sits upon the throne came down to meet with the person Job and gave him an incredible gift that Job recognized. I would not. I'm an idiot. But Job said, oh my goodness, you're God. You are the one upon the throne. I don't need an explanation. My eyes have seen the Lord, the Almighty, the creator and sustainer of all, and, and I'm content. I don't need anything more. But brothers and sisters, as we experience the presence of God in the new earth and the new heaven, he is the one, as E.C. said a couple of weeks ago, I believe, who will wipe away all your tears. He is Emmanuel. He is the one who gives us the supper that we will partake in a few minutes. He is the one who loves you and who has come as a baby in order to deal with our sin and in order to bring salvation so that when we stand before the one who sits upon the throne, it is not with shame, it is not with condemnation, 
It is not with distance. We stand before the throne of God as righteous and at home, justified. And yet, we can relate to a transcendent God with awe and distance and separation as justified beings. The angels are justified, and they recognize the holiness of God, and they bow down in worship. But listen to what it says. To the one who conquers, I will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Not only are we justified, we're adopted. And as Paul talks in Romans and talks about the fact that we have inherited as heirs of Christ, and he talks about, I will be your God and you will be my people. There is an intimacy and an imminence and a presence with the God who sits on the throne that should boggle our minds. Praise God. That's our future. I have one more thing I need to talk about before we close in prayer. Because there is an end to the sea. But there is a lake of fire. And brothers and sisters, we don't escape that lake of fire by anything in ourselves. And if we spend our moments contemplating eternity and think only of the blessings that we will receive, and do not shudder with the reality of judgment, do not recognize that there is an eternity of blessing or of curse, and that we are experiencing that blessing because of the work of Christ, and do not care for those who are at odds with God. We don't recognize the reality of the love God has given us. I want you to think for a moment of David. I want to read from 2 Samuel. David had committed sin with Bathsheba, and Bathsheba had become pregnant. And in God revealing to David his sin and bringing that to the face of the people, it says in chapter 12, And the Lord God afflicted the child that Uriah's wife, doesn't say Bathsheba, doesn't say David's wife, recognizes the reality of David's sin that this is Uriah's wife who had conceived. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And when the elders of the house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. The servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. 
Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes and went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child when he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. We live now in the anticipation of the inheritance that we will receive. We live now with the promise that we are guarded by God who sits upon the throne until such time as we receive that inheritance. But if we are so heavenly focused that we think about what we will receive and care not for those who will not, we have missed the heart of our Savior. You shall be my disciples. You shall be my ambassadors. We're in that place of David now where things have not been resolved, where there is a time yet for those who do not know God to receive mercy. Our hearts should be broken. We cannot, in good conscience, think in the way that people used to write songs in the 70s about smiling as God draws us to himself and watching all those poor suckers who were bound for hell. They are image bearers. They are brothers and sisters. They are fathers and sons. They are mothers and daughters. They are people we must care about. And until such time as that consummation comes, they are those we must not only know, but love. We have an inheritance. We are safe and secure. We're ambassadors. We're called to act. Let me close this in prayer. Almighty God, you who sit upon the throne, you who call us to yourself by your spirit, by your sovereign work to redeem and renew, we pray, for, we pray for wisdom to understand how to live now. We pray, Lord, that we would delight in the confidence that we have that we are safe. But I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would plead with you for the well-being of those who do not have that safety that we would be effective as ambassadors, that we would be your disciples who bring your truth and your reality to the world. And as we come to this table to be fed and to be strengthened, I pray, Lord, that we would come recognizing that many cannot. And I ask, Lord, that you would be at work to give us the grace to be messengers who can bring them to understand and to love Jesus and to come not only to the table, but to the New Jerusalem. In your name we pray. Amen.